0: Welcome to Community Vineyard Church Podcast, a community of believers who passionately worships the Lord Jesus Christ, declares His truth, and shares His life with a world in need. Now for this week's message. Some of you guys have heard this story. I've been talking to people about Calvinism and and the Reformed Church the last few weeks, and some of you guys have have heard this story. I I had a professor when I was in college in graduate school who was like a staunch Calvinist, and I don't mean like staunch, like I, I mean he was like hard determinism, you know, Calvinist, right? But I didn't know that until about halfway through the semester because he started off real slow like with some of the propaganda and he got to choose what he would have us reading so he started off with some of the early church fathers where they talked about the sovereignty of god and then he and then he you know used you know uh, uh saint augustine and was kind of going real slow throughout church history and then he he landed uh a, a a John Piper book on our lap and and made us read this this book now I didn't know anything about John Piper him being a Calvinist and this particular book um, Didn't use any Calvinist language. There was no mention of tulip There's no mention of predestination no mention of any of that stuff and what it did is is it created this narrative where it started with things that everybody agrees with and then it started like you know, talking about different things in a manner that, that was like, Hey, everybody pretty much agrees with this also. And it was like this weird, weird sort of manipulation tactic. Now I called my professor out after I read this book and I called the book Calvinist propaganda and I got a very low grade on that (laughs) book report. um, He didn't like what I had to say about it. And I did have a final paper that I had to write and I, and I needed like almost a hundred percent on this paper in order to get an A in the class. And my, you know, perfectionism didn't allow me to get B's in graduate school. So I chose a subject that him and I both agreed on. <laughs> which was perseverance of the saints. Now we're going to talk about that today. Perseverance of the saints is, is this idea that you cannot lose your salvation, uh, essentially. And so I wrote my report on that and boy, I got, I got almost a hundred percent in that, on that and, and was able to, to squeeze through with, with an A in that class. But I share that story because I think that as I go through this, um, I may come off as a little harsh, and it's not—it's not my intention to cause division. It's not my intention to, you know, like give you guys ammunition to go find a Calvinist and argue with them. That's—that's that's not my intention. Actually, I—I I had to talk about this because in Romans nine, Romans nine is—is is the primary text by which a lot of their theology is. Founded on now as i've been going through and i'm hoping that you guys will see at the end of today We're going to finish up romans 9. I'm hoping that you will see that Well, there may be some text throughout scripture the totality of scripture that may allude to different calvinist ideas there's nothing in romans 9 that even remotely mentions or should be interpreted to to be used in support for any Calvinist ideas. He's not talking about any of that stuff at all. He's The, the topics in Romans 9 are, are directed towards Jewish believers who still believe that they're special because of their heritage, their bloodline, and their supposed good works. It has nothing to do with any of these Calvinist tenets. So to me, using Romans 9 in support of any of that stuff is kind of a gross misinterpretation of scripture now you could have conversations about different you know texts throughout you know throughout the gospels and throughout the bible that may support it but romans 9 is just not one of those and that's kind of where we were in romans but i hope that you leave here today Finding more common ground because I'm going to be talking about the rest of Tulip and I'm going to, you know, their their uh, doctrine, and I, I hope that you can find some common ground, and I hope that um, you you may even leave here. Uh, wanting to have more of an olive branch, more of a, a peaceful conversation rather than something that seems antagonistic. And, and if, you, if you left here last week with that in mind, that's my fault. I didn't mean to come off as harsh or antagonistic. That's, I think that we probably have a lot more in common with Calvinists than we do in disagreement, especially when it comes to the foundations of the gospel so let's let 's begin with a moment of prayer lord we we love you, and we we want unity God, we want to know the truth, we want the Holy Spirit to lead us in the scripture readings today and in our lives lord and And We we just come against any spirit of disunity. People can have different beliefs on certain things and and I pray that we would find more unity more common ground than anything in jesus name amen Amen. So as a review, I kind of had to stop It seems uh, erupt, you know in the scriptures just because for the sake of time last week Um, But we were talking about pharaoh last week and and uh you know, as a review, the verses last week regarding Pharaoh, Paul was not teaching that God somehow like took Pharaoh's free will away from him, but, but rather he knew of Pharaoh's hard-heartedness and allowed him to be raised up into that position because he knew how Pharaoh would react and he was actually showing his glory through Pharaoh, meaning, meaning that he was using Pharaoh's sin and disobedience for his glory. Now, God could have just used his power to control anyone he wanted. But that the point that Paul was trying to make is that the Lord created a, a world with rules and boundaries. And one of those rules and boundaries is free will. Now, I think we all agree that God can do anything and he could take away somebody's free will. But he doesn't do that because to do so would actually go against his nature, right? And so that's kind of what we're going to be diving into or going to be talking about today. So we're going to go into we're going to start with Romans 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? You'll see I put in red, that's not actually in Romans, but this is, I'm, I'm giving you the citation because Paul is quoting Isaiah. And he goes on to say, Does not the potter have the right to make out of the lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? The argument that Paul is addressing, by the way, remember, all throughout Romans he's having this conversation with an imaginary friend who may be refuting some of his ideas. The argument that he's making again and last week we talked about is that God's standard for salvation has nothing to do with bloodline or works. These are continuous connected thoughts all throughout Romans. Paul's not introducing a new sort of random theology in Romans 9 that shakes the foundation of Christianity. He's, he's continuing his comments, and they're all progressive thoughts, okay? And the argument that Paul is addressing in these verses... Uh, <laughs> let me just say, if, if Paul was having an actual argument with one of these believers... The believer's statement would look kind of like this, okay? But it's not fair that God says we're not special anymore. (laughs) It's our bloodline and our good works that make us stand out. Paul's challenging this idea that has come from the very beginning of Judaism that they were special and that they were called and they had all of these things that made them special that that made them stand out that made God love them over the rest of the world as if God hated the rest of the world and just specifically loved the Jews. And that's just not the case. You could read throughout all of Scripture, and Paul is actually going to be pulling some of these scriptures out to illustrate that God's plan was always for all of humanity. God's plan was never to just isolate one group, raise them up, and then everybody else is, is uh, you know, left without God or anything like that. Further, Paul is continuing his argument that God will use the free will of others for his kingdom, whether they want him to or not, meaning that if you're living a life of willful sin and disobedience to God, like Pharaoh was, God will still bring about his will for the global body of believers, and he will use it even to get other people saved. Now, this actually leads me to an idea of predestination that I, uh, I actually kind of agree with, Okay but not for the individual so let me explain i do not believe that the individual is totally controlled by god and that we don't have free will i believe that we all have free will however we do not have free will to change the global like purpose of god does that make sense so this is god's story all of human history and all of history is god's story and he's going to do with it what he wants. It's it's in a sense that the, the the history of humankind, mankind from start to finish, that's actually within the realm of God's free will. So God has free will to do with that whatever he wants. Now we can choose to participate in God's plan. But we cannot change God's plan. So this is why you find scriptures that some Calvinists will use and support all you know all throughout Scripture. They will use these different scriptures that indicate that God's will is you know that God's plan is going to be fulfilled and that you know His word does not come back void. All these different scriptures they will say, "See, look, that points to Calvinism. No, that points to God's will. That points to God's free will, and He's exercising it to do what He wants." for his glory, for his story. Now, within that, we can choose to participate in that. We can submit our free will to God and participate in his story, or we can act in disobedience. That's where we have free will. Does that make sense? So you want to be careful when you're, when you're reading scripture. If, if you ever, you know, if you talk to a Calvinist and they start pointing out and pulling out all these scriptures, see, God has a plan. God's plan is sovereign. It's going to come to pass. Well, that's because that's God's free will that he's exercising. We do not have, like, I can't exercise Tom's free will or anybody else's free will for them in the same way that I can't exercise God's free will. This story is his story. So I think that we need to we need to point out that if we're going to be using some of those scriptures We need to be very careful that we're not talking about free will for the individual versus God's free will because we're made in his image That's why we have free will And then you know the last verse where Paul Paul is talking about does the potter have the right to make out a lump of clay Some pottery for special purposes and some for common use um First of all, he's, he's quoting Isaiah and the analogy of the potter. That's actually several times throughout there. That's mentioned several times throughout the Old Testament. But Paul is pointing out to the Jewish believers their own pride and arrogance in trying to demand something from God. That's what he's pointing out. He's, he's not saying that God is going to create you just for a specific purpose and that that's going to be what you do for the rest of your life. Paul's pointing out the arrogance of the Jewish believers, and, and you know he's having this imaginary argument. And he's pointing out their arrogance and demanding that God, you know, make them special because of their bloodline and their supposed works. He's 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 not he's not using that in a text to say that God made you to be an electrician or God made you to be a king or God made you to be a peasant. And who are you to ask that? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that. Um, he's, He's pointing out the arrogance that the Jewish believers had in trying to demand their own way from God. Verse 22. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction and... Uh, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory Even us whom he also called not only from the jews, but also from the gentiles So let me unpack this because it, it, it can be a little confusing. So who are the objects of his wrath? The unsaved people who don't know him People who walk in disobedience who don't want to know God remember I, I you know tom mentioned this last week You know, he gave his exhortation near the end of the service. If somebody wants to go to hell, it's because they choose to go to hell, right? And so who are the objects of the wrath, of God's wrath? The people who choose that path, who choose to reject God. But who are the objects of his mercy? Well, those who choose to walk within God's will, who choose to receive the free gift of salvation, to begin the process of sanctification, who does the preparing? Well when it comes to the wrath and destruction, it's the work of the enemy and the work of man that prepares God's judgment, meaning that they're actually making their bed, right? They're preparing you know to receive or, or they're creating a scenario in which they will receive God's wrath and God's judgment. They're preparing their, their bed, they make their bed, right? When it comes to the riches of his glory, who does the preparing? God does. God is preparing all of this for us. He's preparing and he has created a path by which we can be reconciled with him. And then he brings it right back to one of his main points throughout all, uh, throughout all of Romans, that specifically that this gospel is for Jew and Gentile alike. And while God could completely eradicate all sin and all those who oppose him in the flash of an eye, he chooses not to for several reasons. First of all, as I mentioned, to do so would take away free will. And if he takes away free will, I believe that steps outside of his nature, right? And God's nature, like he cannot sin, he cannot lie, and he cannot go outside of the things that are in his nature. And so if stealing, if giving all of us the gift of free will and then stealing that back or taking that back would go against his nature, he cannot do it. In addition... I believe that there's always hope for repentance and, and, and the opportunity to receive salvation. So if God snapped his fingers and eradicated all sin and eradicated all evil, then that's like pretty much an indication of the end of times, right? Because God uses sin, it, his glory isn't in creating sin as the Calvinists will have you believe. They, I mean, they believe that, that God created sin and that God created the demons and created the devil to work on his behalf to bring about his glory. His His glory isn't in creating sin. His glory is in how beautifully he uses it to bring about his purpose. His glory is in how beautifully he brings it, like he uses other people's sin and even our own sin to bring about our own salvation and maybe even to be uh, a testimony for, for the rest of the believers, for the rest of the world. See, God, God tolerates sin, and he uses it in his purposes, but he doesn't cause it. And I believe that as soon as sin and disobedience are no longer useful, he will eradicate them. And then we're going to see the beginning of the events of Revelation. When it's no longer useful, he will, I mean, to, do, to allow sin when it's no longer useful, I believe would go against his nature. <clears throat> then we get into Hosea. I'm going through some of this fast. I hope you guys don't mind because I do. I do want to get through. I want to read the scriptures and kind of give you an you know help help you guys to understand what they're saying. And then I do want to talk about the rest of the Calvinist tenets uh, real quick. So we're going to go into uh, as he says in in, in twenty in verse twenty five. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one, and. In the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. So now Paul, I, I love that Paul does this, and I, and I love listening to pastors who make a claim and then they use it—they use scripture to support their claim. This is, this is what Paul is doing. Paul made a claim, has been making a claim about the gospel being available for everybody, and now he's using scripture to support it. Okay, um, <clears throat> In these verses, he's given examples of the prophetic voice that Hosea had in predicting that there would come a time When Gentiles and the rest of humanity would be called children of God and welcomed into the kingdom And the, the, the use of Hosea in this manner, by the way, is the same way that Peter uses it in, in his letters And so it further supports the accuracy of interpreting Hosea in this manner um, And then he goes on and he begins to use Isaiah Isaiah cries out concerning Israel though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea only the remnant will be saved for the Lord will carry out a sentence on earth with speed and finality like I was kind of saying as soon as sin no longer has you know a value in God's kingdom meaning not you know God is using the sin of other people to bring about his glory not creating it but as soon as it no longer has value, he will bring about, uh, he will carry out his sentence with speed and finality. And it goes on, it, it is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord has left us descendants, we would become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. Paul's using these scriptures to support his claims from verses 22 through 24. He's reiterating that once the remaining Christians are brought into the kingdom, God will carry out his sentence. Then he uses the verse from Isaiah 9 in support of his previous claim that without the work of Christ on the cross, we would all be guilty. That's what he was talking about in Romans 1 and 9. Do you guys get this picture now? We're we're nine chapters into Romans. Do you guys get this picture that, that Paul is detailing a very clear gospel presentation throughout the totality of Romans? Because we have chapters and verses and we have headings, it can be easy to think that Paul is separating different things and he's moving on to another topic, but he's actually not. These are all thoughts that are either building on one one another or they're connected thoughts. And now he's going about, and he's actually been doing it all throughout Romans, now he's going about using Scripture in support. I mean, I think that Romans 9, I'd have to clarify this, I'm pretty sure, but Romans 9 has the most scriptural support. So he's gotten to the point in his message to the to the Jewish believers in Rome where he is now he's made his claims about about the gospel being available for everybody and and it's not based on works and all that stuff. And now he's using scripture in support of all of it. And he goes on, "What shall we say in verse 30? What shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as their way of righteousness have not... Sorry. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as their way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Now, Pretty early on in my Christian walk, as I either heard somebody preach on Romans or maybe I read this and maybe read a commentary, we all know as we read that, most of us know, unless you're kind of new to the faith like I was, most of us know that this is in reference to Jesus Jesus in the ministry of Jesus, right? The stumbling block, okay? But this is actually the first time that anybody uses this as a reference to... You know quotes isaiah as this reference now jesus did it Jesus did it but not everybody was around we didn't have they didn't have the gospels like you know, like people heard of Jesus and they heard of the gospels and they didn't have the actual written text So jesus quoted this at one point in his ministry And now paul is also introducing this idea that jesus and his ministry Were like a stumbling block a stone that caused people to get confused Okay, they caused people to sort of go off the go, go off the wrong path because they didn't understand What jesus was saying and what his ministry was saying? And Paul is trying to use this letter to Rome, to to the Roman believers, to get people back on that path, right? So this was a prediction by Isaiah that people were not going to understand the ministry and the life of Jesus. And so Paul is saying, "Look, look, look at what Isaiah said about the ministry and life of Jesus. This is why you're getting tripped up. This is why you're confused. Don't let the enemy confuse you when it comes to this, right? So he's wrapping up his statements, his comments on on related to a works-based salvation for Israel, and he gives a contrast between salvation and the Jews attempting to gain salvation by keeping the law. Right? This—that was the whole thing that they were trying to do during this time period. Was they kept going back? Well, don't we? Do we need to keep the law? Do we not need to keep the law? What is this? And Paul saying, no, you cannot earn your salvation. It's a free gift, and it's not just for you guys anymore. <clears throat> Now, this will bring us to the end of my scripture reading for Romans, okay? I got through that pretty quick for a couple of reasons. I think, first of all, we're a little behind on the service, but I also really wanted to touch on more Calvinist ideas and and theologies and beliefs. Normally, I would not not do this um, if I was just giving an exegesis on these scriptures, because there's really nothing in these scriptures that has anything to do with the five tenets of calvinism and i hope that you leave here with that today using romans 9 in support of anything that has to do with the five tenets of calvinism is just a gross misunderstanding of scripture Um, but i'm going to dive into it anyway just just for fun the five points of calvinism this is a, a uh, review from last week. We have total depravity, we have unconditional election or sovereign election, we have limited atonement, definite atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Now you can see there's a lot of overlap with some of these things as I go through these doctrines, and that's just because they came up with a really bad acronym. They, they, they had somebody who wasn't very creative. They came up with tulip. Really, the points of Calvinism probably can be restated in maybe three. Two points three points something like that but there's a lot of overlap so let's talk about total depravity okay this concept is based on the comments of Paul in Romans 1 and 2 specifically that without the work of Christ on the cross humans do not have the ability to bridge the gap between our own sin and God's righteousness and the law could not be kept and that law is not the bridge that could keep that right now if they just stopped there I'd be like cool agree with total depravity because everything that I just said I think is supported by scripture but they don't leave it there the wording that they use is apt is an apt description of the belief that without the work of Christ they believe that man is fully and completely shot through a sin that there's nothing redeemable in man but is that true is there is are we 100% Irredeemable. Now, now, I'm not talking about bridging a gap. We don't have the ability to, but are we 100% evil without? Ah, that's what Tom said. He's reading my notes. We are made in God's image, right? So we can't possibly be 100% evil, right? Second, God made mankind and he said that we're very good, right? Now, of course, this was before the fall. But that doesn't mean that just because we chose sin that we have nothing redeemable about us. Third, there's a concept called provenient grace, which I actually do believe is sound. It's it's kind of, it may be a little complicated to try to find scriptures for it, but it's the grace that's offered to us before we get saved. Or another way of putting it, or another way that it's manifest, is that prevenient grace is the grace that lures us into hearing the gospel. It's the grace that, that, that God uses to pull us, and it's actually something that that is sort of activated within our spirit. It's activated within who we are. And it protects us from the attacks of the enemy before we get saved. And it also helps to guide us into repentance, even before we receive the gospel, right? So, while I do agree with sort of the conclusion that they make, that we can't bridge the gap, which I think comes directly from Scripture, we cannot bridge the gap. Between between uh, our own our own flesh and God's righteousness without the work of Christ on the cross. Well, I do agree with that. I do not agree with this idea of total and complete depravity. And we know that only a Sith deals in absolutes. Yeah, You're like what is that? Yeah. Okay, moving on. Say it again. Yeah, I've got memes I don't normally do memes Throughout, If you're a visitor here I don't always do memes Only when we're discussing Calvinism I can't help myself There's so many good ones out there And if I don't find good ones Then I hire Ruth to make good ones for me Because I I don't know how to do the Canva Pro stuff Unconditional election If you missed this This is basically the idea last week Where uh, the Calvinists believe That we don't have any free will that everything that we do was predetermined, predestined is the term that they use, uh, from the beginning of time. So the idea that we have a choice to receive Christ is not an option for the Calvinists. We have no choice. We are either a Christian uh, from before we were born, or we are not a Christian, and we are doomed for all of eternity in hell from before we were born. We have no choice in the matter. If you want more details on I'm not going to cover this this week. I covered it, I think, exhaustively last week. If you want more details, we do have a podcast, and you should listen to our podcast and share it with a friend. Uh, And it's also on YouTube. But here, I've tried to find one. (laughs) It's so good. feel bad for this poor fellow. I mean, he's probably in his 30s by now, you know, but like this has been his picture has been everywhere for decades. (laughs) Limited atonement, definite atonement. This is the idea that Christ's work on the cross only covers the sins of people who get saved. Now, what do you guys think about that? Does it only cover? So like, and, and I can kind of understand like the logic behind it, but what does scripture say? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's go back in time to Romans 5. Why don't we just read Romans 5? It's pretty simple. Consequently, and we're in verse 18, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. And all in the Greek here means all. <laughs> for just as though we were disobedient, for just as though the disobedience of one man, the uh, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. And Paul's not saying that everybody, this is not universalism, this is not that everybody's going to get saved, only that the work of Christ on the cross covers all sins for all mankind, regardless of whether or not you receive the free gift of grace through faith in Christ. So it's it's been done, now all you need to do is receive the gift. If you choose not to receive the gift, then you will be separated from God. It is your choice to receive that gift of, of, of salvation, to receive that free gift of, of uh, sanctification, right, and regeneration. You have to receive it. It's just like Tom said last week. If you go to hell, you choose to go to hell. And we have, oh, here's another one. <laughs> and here we are using the Bible... Here we are using the Bible to refute the limited atonement. All the... Then we have irresistible grace or effectual grace. This is the idea that if you are chosen, you cannot resist the will of God. Now, to me, there's, it's very difficult to differentiate. I'm not even going to try to differentiate between this and unconditional election because they're really two sides of the same coin. It's this idea that specifically if he's chosen you, you can try to resist, but no matter what you do, you'll eventually become a Christian. Okay? Um, I think it's just simply reiterating that you have no choice in the matter, but this is the doctrine that's commonly associated with the sovereignty of God argument. Okay? So let me just make a few comments on the sovereignty of God, because here's the problem with a lot of Calvinists. Calvinists will use this term, sovereignty of God, and they'll hide behind it. So if you have a conversation with them, not all of them, I'm generalizing. I'm not trying to villainize them either, but I've had conversations with with some Calvinists and they just, they they use this as a shield to prevent them from uh, looking at scriptures and changing their belief, okay? So they say, well, God is sovereign, so he can do whatever he wants, okay? Let me just, I agree that God is sovereign. He has all power. He has all authority, He can choose to do anything that he wants unless it's against his nature For example, God cannot sin God cannot lie And I believe that it would go against his nature I believe that it would in a sense be some sort of a deception for all of us to be like here's free will Uh, But you don't really have it. I determined all that's that's deception I believe that that is against God's nature. So I don't believe that He can give us free will, but we don't really have it to begin with. That's not, that's against His nature. God is sovereign, He has all power, all authority and we have free will. Yes, thank you. It's not one or the other. It's not but they will use that. They'll be like, "Well, God is sovereign. God is sovereign." They'll use it and they'll put up a wall and then if you say, "Well, what does scripture say about that?" Let's read this scripture. No, no, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And here's the problem with it. It's it's arguing from from a place of manipulation. It's called the foot in the door technique. God is sovereign. I get my foot in the door. God is sovereign. We all agree on that, right? right? Now I'm going to introduce all these other ideas, right? The foot in the door technique. It's also generalization because they will use this term that God is sovereign and then they'll generalize it to all of these different ideas. It's a, common da- it's a combination of strategies and it is the most common argument that a Calvinist will use when you begin to challenge anything that they believe, and, and I believe that it's this idea that most, most apt prevents a Calvinist from receiving any sort of a deviation or change in their beliefs. And, and I think that it's actually almost like a badge of pride. Like, you'll, you'll hear some of them, and I think that this was John Calvin's mistake if you read some of his works. Now, I've not read all of his works. I just get this general sense that when I'm reading Calvin, that he has this pride in... The belief that God is sovereign, and and that if you don't share that belief, that that somehow like there's something wrong with you, or or that or that uh, you know like he's better off, or or something like that. There's this almost this pride in the belief that God is sovereign. Now, I, and I agree with God. I agree with that. That God is sovereign, but you can't use that term to then indicate this, 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 this and then take away from the narrative in the Bible just because God is sovereign. Does that make sense? Let me move on. Oh, here, I think I have another one. (laughs) All these are funny. (laughs) If you can't read, it says, I'm a Calvinist, and my Armenian boyfriend took me to an all-you-can-eat buffet... And he said, I could eat whatever I want. No, you can't. No, you can't. <laughs> then we have perseverance of the saints. Now, this is a doctrine I, I, I mostly agree with. Okay, remember I mentioned it earlier. This is, this is the idea... That once somebody is saved, they can't lose their salvation. And I agree with this, but not for the reasons that Calvinists will believe it. Calvinists believe it is because you it was determined from before you were born and you don't have an option in it. So you have to you 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 can't lose your salvation because you always had it, even from before you were born. Well, I don't agree with that, but I do agree that you can't lose your salvation. I mean, the Gospel of John says in, in, in chapter 10, verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And there's probably a dozen more verses in support of this. Isaiah 55, 11, John uh, chapter 6, 35-37, and then Romans, of course. Romans 8, 38-39, and, and I could go on and on. Once the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, He doesn't leave. It's not. It's not like we we talked about. Like he leaves. Uh, you make a mistake. You sin, and the the dove flies off your shoulder, and you need to like coax him back through spiritual practices. No, the second that you become a born again believer, your old nature died with Christ on the cross, and you are a new creation. Yeah. That po- that process cannot be reversed. That process, he's not trying to revive your old self and, and you're trying to like struggle with your old self or anything like that. No, you're a new creation, like a prototype, something that's never been created before. And you can't go back to being this you know, lost sinner. Once you truly receive Christ, you truly receive Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. There's a merge, there's a marriage between you and the Holy Spirit that cannot be taken away from you. And then this last meme is probably my favorite, but it doesn't, (laughs) I've been talking to people about Calvinism and I encountered a new species, okay, a a new species. Um, Try to, try to explain this one to me. It's a, it's a uh, charismatic Calvinist. We all know how we felt about Jar Jar. It's the same way that we feel about charismatic Calvinists. <laughs> now a brief note on Armenianism. So if you haven't heard you've heard me reference it a couple of times, we have this 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 fellow named Armenian, okay? Now, in order to understand Calvinism, you really do need to understand the history behind it. Calvinism flowed out of a response against the Catholic Church, okay? So, their Reformed beliefs are part of the Protestant Reformation. They came out of and as a response to Catholic beliefs. So, even all those things in Tulip, each one of those aligns specifically with a Catholic doctrine that they were trying to oppose during that time. They actually did not, you know, create this in a to armenianism armenianism didn't exist until calvinism came into being right so the calvinism was a response to the catholic church and then others began to create responses to armenianism or or to uh, calvinism and that's where you get armenian right and so what they did and this is also i believe an error this drives me nuts i've talked about this probably three or four times in the last year When there is a bad Christian theology, which I would say Calvinism is a bad Christian theology um, People will create an alternative theology that is far on the other side of the spectrum Far on the other side of the pendulum So the pendulum swings over here, you have no free will And then Armenians in response to that, they come up with their own acronym With five counter-beliefs that swing way on the other side and that also are not supported by by uh, uh, theology or Christian theology or the Bible, right? So that's that's the mistake that they make. And a lot of Calvinists will say, "Oh, are you are you Calvinist? or are you Armenianism? You know, are you Armenian, right?" And if you and and then they can refute all, almost all of the Armenian beliefs, which I believe that you can refute a lot of the Armenian beliefs. For example, instead of saying that you know, uh, yes, I agree with the perseverance of the saints. But for different reasons, right? They will say no There is no perseverance of the saints. You can lose your salvation So now you have to constantly be working at it. You have to constantly be repenting You have to constantly be doing all these things because you can lose your salvation I'm not going to get into all the beliefs that they they have made but a lot of People will tell you that you have to be one or the other and both are opposite ends of the extremes and both are wrong Okay, There is a happy balance There is a happy medium Now I will say that I lean probably closer to Armenian beliefs than I do Calvinist beliefs But there are definitely some that I don't agree with And I'm not going to get into all of them now But it just makes me annoyed Because I mean the the Protestants did this with Catholicism and then Catholicism Shot right back and started creating Anti-Protestant doctrine That is also not based in scripture And it's not what they believed for 1500 years prior to that you know, and it just annoys me. So I just thought that I would make a brief comment on, on Armenianism. But why is all this stuff important, right? What is, what is the, the helpful part of this, right? I mean, I like theology, and I like being able to have some of these conversations. Well, I think it's important because I want to train you guys to be able to smell a deception, I, when you meet somebody and you talk to them and they start, I want you to be able that smells like Calvinism. That smells a little like you have a problem with the Trinity. I want you guys to be able to sniff this stuff out. Not so that you can cause division, but so that you can be protected against doctrine that will lead you astray. And I do believe that Calvinism leads you astray. Like we talked about last week, when Calvinism, this idea of, of predestination, gets put into practice, it leads people astray, meaning that they stop praying. There's no point in it. They stop evangelizing. There's no point in that either. Right? And the list goes on and on. It leads, it, it's not just I'm leading you astray in doctrine and then I can go back to. Believing everything that I believe and I don't have to change anything. That's where this idea of the charismatic Calvinist comes from somebody who's a charismatic and then they become a Calvinist It's because they believe Calvinism, but they don't follow it to its logical conclusion and they don't put it into practice But that's an error because if you do put it into practice, it's gonna lead you astray And I also want to train you guys to be theologians if there's anything up here that you disagree with, and I'm going to be honest with you, I could I could preach for probably a month on each one of the tulip tenets, right? I didn't do an exhaustive thing. If you have any questions, come see me. Do some of your own research. Maybe you disagree with me. Maybe somebody's in here and like I disagree. That's okay. Let's talk about it. Do your research. Challenge me. I'll do some more research, and we can have a conversation about it. And I would encourage you guys, because I want you guys to be equipped to be able to have these conversations. Don't just believe me blindly. Do the research. Learn about this stuff. Be equipped. Now, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, but there are some things that I feel like the Holy Spirit gave me as sort of an overarching conclusion for Romans 9. And these overarching conclusions have nothing to do with Calvinism, because Romans 9 has nothing to do with Calvinism. (laughs) What are the conclusions of Romans 9? Well, salvation is not based on, based on your bloodline or your ethnicity or any family that you were born into or anything like that. Salvation has nothing to do with any of that stuff. Also, receiving salvation or, or, or just the idea of being born again has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with what Christ did. Yes. It's, it's not something that you can earn. This is not a works-based salvation. This is not something that if you are good enough, you can be in right standing with God. This is one of the biggest errors that you hear people when you, when you, you know, read or watch some of these videos on YouTube. You know, uh, They ask questions like, do you think you're going to heaven or do you think you're going to hell? Well, nobody says, I'm going to hell. I'm pretty confident. You know? <laughs> Everyone says, I'm, I, I think I'm going to heaven because why? I'm a good person, right? If you hear somebody say, I'm going to heaven because I put my faith in Jesus Christ, then yeah, they are probably going to heaven. But if you hear somebody say, well, I'm not a Christian. I think that I could be a Muslim and go to heaven and Buddhist and, you know, that's, that shows that they don't understand the gospel. It shows that they are probably actually not going to heaven. Because they have put their faith, their idea, in what gets you into heaven based on their works, based on their belief that they're a good person. That's not what Scripture says. The other conclusions are that salvation is an opportunity for everybody. Everybody has the option for salvation. Now I want to close here because... As I was kind of concluding this in my own thought, I wrote that, and then I thought to myself, are there people who I believe are never going to get saved who don't have this option? Now, I I can say theologically I think that everybody has the option, but how many of you guys think that, I don't even want to say any names, it's hard for me, but like, is there somebody either in your life or somebody you watch on TV and you're like, they're hopeless? They're never going to get saved. I'm not even going to pray for them. How many of you guys stop praying for a politician or two? Like, we always say that when somebody we don't like gets elected, well, we need to pray for that person. But how many of you guys have stopped? Because you just don't have hope in them. You know, like, I see everything they're doing, I don't have hope. How many of you guys have a family member? And you're like, I see everything they're doing, and I just stop praying for them because, you know, they're not elect. You know, they're not special. I want you to pray for them again. I want you to go back to praying for them again. Who is that person in your life who you think they're never going to get saved? Is that love to stop praying for somebody? Even if, I mean, even if you think they're lost, too far gone, manipulated by an evil spirit, whatever it is. Do not stop praying for that person, that boss that you have. Do not stop praying for that person. Do not lose hold of the reality that this gospel is available for everybody. And it may just be your prayer that leads that person, that, that provenient grace. It's your prayer that activates something inside of somebody that coaxes them closer and closer to the gospel. God loves him more than you do, and he's not lost hope. Don't you lose hope either. As we worship the Lord, I want, you to, I want you to spend some time just, and I'm actually, when I close, I'm going to lead us in a prayer, but as we're spending some time in worship, I want you to pray for that person. And then we can we can worship together. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord. Thank you for tuning in to Community Vineyard Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's message, click the share button and be sure to subscribe to our channel so that you'll be notified of our latest content. To learn more about Community Vineyard Church or how you can partner with us, please visit our website at www.communityvineyard.org. Until next time.